is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca. And welcome to the Monday edition of Game Misconduct. I am Don LaGreca, and Monday always means the great E.J. Raddick. You can follow him on the NHL Network, NHL Now, between the hours of 4 and 6, Michelle McMahon and Steve Mears. How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm good, Don. How are you today? I need you to answer questions for me. That's why we have you on, because you're an expert. And I'm wondering, how can a team like Edmonton blow a three-goal lead with 320 to play and then come back in the next game and win 7-1? to How does that happen? Well, I would remind you that in the last series that the Oilers were involved in against the San Jose Sharks, they lost the game 7 nothing. Right. And then came back and won the next two to win the series. So um, these are the strange things that sometimes happen in hockey. And uh, they were obviously very motivated by uh, a bad outing at the end of game three. Some would tell you that uh, the hockey gods worked against them, as well as the referees in game number uh Game number five, I would uh, tell you that replay is not a – it's just not something that happens. It's not clean all the time, and sometimes those are hard calls and and it doesn't happen for you the way you perhaps see it. But uh, I just think that the the good news for the Oilers was I was really impressed with their ability to put that behind them and come out and get the crowd in the game as they did uh, in in a great manner and ended up winning that game. So – you know, that's just the nature of things sometimes. Uh, it was just uh, their night, and they took full advantage of it. And I'll be curious to see now what happens in game number seven. There's two uh, an extra day off between game six and game seven. And uh, the, the dynamic, the storyline there is that the Anaheim Ducks have lost four consecutive game sevens on home ice, dating back to 2013. And they have had the lead for all of no minutes. Right. They've had no leads in any of these games, so I'll be very curious to see what happens in Game 7. But give the Oilers a lot of credit for really being refocused, and they played great in Game Number 6. And you know what's funny? I don't know if you were thinking the same thing. After Period 1, they're up 5 nothing, And I still couldn't turn it off because I'm thinking to myself, you know what, no lead has been saved. They've got 40 yeah. minutes. All they needed was three and a half minutes to score three goals. Maybe they got 40 minutes to score five. And I'm sure that that was talked about in the room, too. So for them to get that sixth goal, I thought was important and stay engaged. Because, right, both teams, neither team has been able to hold multiple goal leads. It's been a fun series that way. But did you have the same thought going into the second period? I can't turn this off just yet because Anaheim can still make it a game. Yes, I did. (laughs) Because um, Anaheim has already overcome three goal deficits twice in the playoffs not only in the short run against the Oilers, but in a longer period of time against the Flames. So I figured, you know, if they could score one early in the second, you get to 5-1, then maybe you get to 5-2, and then it's, you know, then you're back kind of in the game. So you're right. I mean, the way the playoffs have been, they should have been kind of screwy in terms of teams holding on to leads. But uh, the Edmonton Oilers weren't having any of that. It was their night, and uh, they uh, – they put that one away. So again, we'll see how things go in Game Seven. I think it's it's just gonna it's such a, tr- a terrific story to see how Edmonton is going to fare in this circumstance. The Game Seven, the first one in this uh, 
era of Edmonton hockey, which is going to be, I think, a long and successful one with Connor McDavid. Yes. And how the Anaheim Ducks fare in this one at the, you know, a window that is kind of closing on them for success with Getzlaff and Perry and Kessler. It's franchise, a mm-hmm. team that has lost these four consecutive home ice game sevens. I mean, that's hard to really do, Doug. It is. I mean, you've been watching hockey a long time, as, a, as have I. To lose four consecutive game sevens on home ice and never have a lead in any of them. <laughs> It's just, it's hard to fathom. Yeah, and even historically, Game 7's period, right? Losing Game 7 in 2003, at least that was at New Jersey. So just historically, it's just been a landmine for them. And you're right, that's a great analogy that you brought up, or a great point, that this could be a passing of the baton, if you will, in that division. I mean, Anaheim's won it five straight years. They've been kind of the perennial deep playoff run team, and Edmonton is going to be that next generation. And as much as I'd like to see Edmonton win the game just because I'd like to see more of Connor McDavid, I'd like to see more of those guys, their time is, is yet to come. So even if they were to lose Game 7, I don't think I would fret it too much as a Edmonton fan. It would be a great lesson learned getting to play in a Game 7 at such a young age. But I guess for that fan base that has not seen a run since 2006, I think they would, <laughs> they'd rather them to learn their lesson in the conference final than a loss in Game 7. Yeah, I agree. And I'll tell you what, though. They're playing with the house money here. I think I so. Mean, they're, yeah. ahead of, they're ahead of schedule, and uh, they're getting to go with this whole storyline about the Ducks. Uh, and they played well in Anaheim. They won the first two games there. They could have easily won the third game there, game five. So, I mean, they really got to be feeling really, I think, really good about themselves as they head into this. And... Uh, you know, all the pressure is going to be on the Anaheim Ducks, in my view. So uh, Yeah, I agree. I'm very listen. curious to see how it breaks down. And, like, for me, I think it's essential for the Ducks to score first in that game, to get the crowd into it, to get the lead, and just to feel on that bench that, hey, this is our night. Right. And this is not going to be a circumstance where we're going to have this happen again. Because you know how this works, Don. If they fall behind again in this scenario, um, they are going to uh, – you know, they're going to feel it, and the crowd is going to feel it. So it's going to be a very interesting night in Anaheim, that's for sure. And we know the winner of that game will take on Nashville. Congratulations to the Preds advancing to the conference final for the first time in franchise history. And I think Peter Laviolette's done a tremendous job there. He's won a cup in Carolina, went to a Stanley Cup final in Philadelphia, gets Nashville to make a run. I mean, I like him a lot as a coach, and boy, that's a fun team to watch. They're not going to score a ton of goals, EJ, but boy, they are a really, really good team. And, uh, I, I would, I would, I don't know how you feel about. It. I probably would have them be the favorite over either Edmonton or Anaheim. Well, I mean, uh, I know talking to Bob Stopper, who is uh, does is the color analyst for the Oilers games uh, earlier before the playoffs started. I asked him who were the tough matchups for the Oilers, and he actually said the uh, Nashville Predators are a or a, they just have not played well against them. I think it's because Nashville's a little different animal. They've got that group of four defensemen that is so good, and they, they play a little differently. Their defense are so up in the play. They do things differently than other teams, so you have to have a different approach against them. So uh, certainly that's how that matchup would at least we'd start. We'd talk about it going in. And, you know, the Anaheim Ducks just played Nashville in the playoffs last year, and I think this Nashville team is better this year. And they were still able to beat the Ducks in a game seven on home ice, so, right. you know, in Anaheim. So uh, I think the Preds are in a good spot right now. Um, I think, you know, those are kind of still toss-up series. I think both those teams, either one of them could win. But I think you're right. I think that, you know, Nashville maybe has earned uh, the right to be a, a favorite in those two matchups. But 
you know, they've got to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, got to give Peter Laviolette a lot of credit. I mean, he won a cup with Carolina. He took Philadelphia to a final. And now here he is in Nashville, and he's in the Final Four. So uh, Peter's obviously done a lot of good things in his career. And uh, he's at the, another. He's at a, the place where maybe he could get to a third Stanley Cup final with a third different team, and maybe win a second Stanley mm-hmm. Cup. So uh, Peter's done doing a terrific job there. All right, tonight Washington and Pittsburgh, and you saw. I think Washington that was an important win, not just to stay alive, but the way they did it too, coming back from a deficit in the third period. So even though they dug themselves a huge hole, EJ, trying to fight back from a 3-1 down, if you take it one game at a time and look for any kind of momentum from the previous game, I would think Washington has it, right? I mean, that's that's a game you expected them to lose in Game 5, down a goal going to the third period. Ovechkin gets a huge tally in that game. So I would guess for a team down 3-2 playing on the road, Washington might feel pretty good about itself tonight. Yeah, I, I mean, it's this weird situation because normally you'd say – well, we're here, we're playing the defending champions, we're on the road. Again, it's kind of like, let's go in there and just play and see how it plays out, right? That, uh, you know, they're the defending champions, they're home, they're supposed to win. But this is a different dynamic. It's the Washington Capitals, and it's a team that was the President's Trophy winner. And a lot of people, including myself, thought this was the year maybe they were going to win the Stanley Cup. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out tonight. Pittsburgh has been great at home all year. Uh, Washington did find a way to win a game in Pittsburgh earlier in the series. I expect it to be much the same as it's been in the series. I expect it to be a close game. A lot will depend upon how the goaltenders uh, play. And so, uh, you know, we will see how it plays out tonight. But I give Washington certainly a, a chance. Yeah. They played. They they have played. You know, when you think about the whole series, um, you know, they've been right in these games with the exception of game two. So, We'll see how it plays out tonight. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And, of course, we've got the other game that we haven't gotten to yet, and that's what happened to the Rangers on Saturday against the Ottawa Senators. So frustrating, EJ. We watched live games three and four, dominant 60-minute performance. Rangers are just a better team than the Senators. But if they let down even for a moment, you know, Ottawa's going to jump all over them. 33 seconds between goals to take the lead in the second period. Again, finding a way to get a late goal to force it to overtime. So why can't this Ranger team put the Senators away? You know, that's a great question. I, I, you know, playoff series are sometimes are hard to figure. And the thing that would be the negative for me with the Rangers is that really this series, Don, should be over. The Rangers should have won in five. Well, yeah. They should have won game two, and they should have won game five. I mean, from, from my money, I mean, I, I thought they were the better team in both of those games. But they found ways not to win, and the Ottawa Senators found ways to win. So, to me, I think the Rangers are going to come out in game six and play very well and win game six. I, don't, I have very little doubt about that, which in this sport, I usually have a lot of doubt about these type of things. <laughs> right. But I think the Rangers will win game six, and then I think game seven will be a toss-up type game in, a, in Ottawa where – these crazy things have happened. This series has been far different. The games in Ottawa have been far different than the two games at Madison Square Garden. They've been fun to watch in Ottawa. Um, and unless you're a Ranger fan, the games three and four weren't very fun to watch. They were they were kind of blowout. So I'll be curious to see how that game seven, if that thinking is right, how that game seven plays out. I think Elaine Vino has got to start to realize that in, in key situations late in games that he's got to – be willing to use Brady Shea. Yeah, I mean, I know he's a rookie, but he's he's got a he's a big-bodied kid. He's got a long stick. He skates well. Um, I just think that in this game is such a speed game now. 
to try to lean on Danny Girardi and Mark Stahl, it's, it's not 2012 anymore. And these guys are compromised. I mean, Danny Girardi is compromised speed-wise right now. Uh, Mark Stahl defends as hard as he can and defends well, but he's compromised. He's not the same player he was five years ago. And for me, I just look at it and say, hey, why is Brady Shea sitting on the bench for long stretches at the end of games? So I think if we go down this path, if they win game six, or even if game six goes to the same type of scenario where it's tight late, they're trying to hold on to a lead, I just think that Elaine Vigneault has got to break out of the hold a little bit and be willing to play Brady Shea and maybe let go of it's been his his dealing with counter glass has been strange too because glass played great in games three and four, but then in game five he's on the ice in situations where you wouldn't normally expect him to be on the ice. So not to blame him, but you know I look at the coach and just I wonder why why he's playing it that way. So we'll see how things play out, Donnie. But I think the Rangers will win Game Six with a similar effort that they had in Game Three and, and Four. And then I think Game Seven is kind of a toss-up because I have I, I just well, I've seen these series in the past. On I go back all the way back to 1997, Edmonton and Dallas played a series where Dallas won six of the seven games. At least you know if you're watching, you would have thought they would have they won six of the seven games. And in the end, Edmonton won it in seven games of, in overtime in Game Seven. Right. So it happens that way sometimes, where teams are just pesky teams that find ways to win. And the Ottawa Senators certainly qualify for that, but. Uh, the Rangers have been the better team, and this series should be over, and that would be worrying me if I was a Ranger fan. And one last thing on this series before we go to the tweets. Um, I didn't understand why Chris Neal played. didn't make any sense to me. Ottawa needed goals. Why would you play a guy that has played once in his last nine weeks? He's not going to play very many minutes. He's not going to supply any kind of offensive punch. And everybody pretty much agreed with me. And then looking back at it, it really wasn't about matching up with the Rangers. It was about trying to get his team going, and it worked. He only played two minutes and 26 seconds, so it had nothing to do with the game itself or his ability. Matter of fact, the one thing he did do was stupid. You know, jumping on the ice and tackling glass and, and erasing an interference penalty, right? But you yeah. saw the Senators play with an edge. They played, I think, with a little bit more courage because they knew they had a guy out there that could protect them. Uh, and I just think that Guy Boucher pushed the right button, not for the matchup, but by getting the most out of his own team, and I think that worked. I totally agree with you, and I would have told if we would have talked on Saturday morning, I would have said I would have disagreed with you. I would have said that Chris Neal going in was a must move for the Ottawa Senators. They were dead in the water after Game Three and Four. They looked; they had no energy. They were being pushed around. Counter Glass was running around like Clark Gillies mm-hmm. in the uh, in the eighties. I mean, and like Counter Glass is a real earnest, hardworking player. But to me, he's a light middleweight. He's, I mean, light heavyweight. He's not like one of these. He's not like one of those guys that you would say from a different era that should come in and push people around and just be menacing. And that's what he was. I thought, quite frankly, he was menacing in games three and four for the Rangers. And I think the Ottawa Senators needed to have some kind of boost for their for their fan base, for their for their team, and more importantly for that team in the locker room, as you said, to give them just a little bit more courage and to be playing a little bit bigger. And, uh, you know, Chris Neal did that in that game. Now, I don't know if he can if he can be a factor in game six. I don't think he will be. And I don't know if Guy Boucher will, will roll that, will play that card again in game six. But uh, he might just be in the lineup now for the, for the rest of the way just yeah. because they seem to need that in their room against the Rangers. So we'll see how it plays out. But uh, 
you know, again, for me, I thought that was the right move for a team that really, to me, Donnie, when I walked away from game four, I was like, boy, this team needs something. And that was really the kind of pickup. This is someone who's been a lifelong senator. Yeah. The fans wanted him in. The team, you know, those are kind of guys. It's like what Cannon Glass was able to do for the Rangers in that he gave, that, gave them that element and uh, can create energy within the group, not even sometimes playing. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. As I said, the minutes were minuscule, and the one moment that he had on the ice wasn't yeah, exactly what well, wasn't helpful. But I just think the aura, of what he represents, and you're right. I mean, they love him up there. He's been a senator since 2001, a lifelong senator, as you said, and I think that really you know inspired the crowd. I thought got the the senators just played a little bit differently in that game, and we'll see what decisions they make coming up tomorrow. You ready for some? One other thing, yes. One other thing quickly, Donnie, is I thought in that game also, I'm not big on. You know, Henrik Lundqvist's goalies get blamed for a lot of things. I'm not big on blaming the goalies. But I'll tell you what, I thought that first goal was on Henrik Lundqvist because I oh, no question. the way he played that puck behind the net. That was a terrible play behind the net. And the Rangers are up 2 nothing yep. on the road, feeling good, things are great. And then he makes that play, which was mm-hmm. a terrible play. And that led to an opportunity and a goal. So for me, that was a real turning point in the game. Oh, there's no question. Smith takes it away, leads to the Mark Stone goal. You're right, two nothing. Yeah. Look like they're ready to run the Senators out of the building. And after yeah. that goal, it stabilized everything, got the fans exactly. back into it, completely changed the complexion of the game. We've talked so much about Anderson's inability to play the puck. Let's not forget that Hank's not great at it either. No, and I think no. both teams' game plans are to get the goaltender to play the puck and. You know, you, you see, you don't think about it because it was it was the guy that took the puck, got the secondary assist, but when you look at the whole way that that play played itself out, it was because of the mistake behind the net. There's no question about that. Yep. Uh, let's go to the tweets. At Don LaGreca, hashtag game misconduct. Broadway blue shirts, even if the Rangers were to force a game seven, what are their chances of winning that game seven in Ottawa? I think it's a toss-up. I think it's a game they can they can win. Uh, they have to find a way to put the Ottawa Senators away in that situation. Let's face it, if they win game six, they'll be coming in with some sense of momentum. The Rangers have played in a lot of game sevens, this uh, core group, over the last, uh, what, six, seven, eight years. Sure. They've played in a lot of these type of situations. In fact, they beat the Ottawa Senators in a game seven, albeit that one was at Madison Square Garden several years ago. But uh, I look at it as a toss-up, and a lot of it I think will be on the decision-making of Elaine Vigneault if the game is close late. Because, again, I do think that uh, it is important who you have on the ice in those final minutes. You only have on that bench who you have. You don't have Bobby Orr sitting there. You have the guys you have. And I think that uh, the decision not to to give Brady Shea an opportunity to at least be on the ice for some of that late in the game, to me, it's just I, well, I just don't think that's the way to go for me. Well, both the other two pairings have been burned, right? So why not why not try uh, a Smith and Shea then, right? Because you've you've tried it with McDonough and Girardi, and you've given up the lead. You tried it with with Stahl, so yeah, why not Brady Shea? He's been great in this series. I mean, I get it. I understand that he's a kid, yeah. but you know what? Sometimes you've tried everything else, and it's they've got five losses in these playoffs, EJ, and three of them have come in situations where they've given up a goal to, with the goalie pulled. And then eventually losing in overtime. And, and once you get to overtime, EJ, right? It's we can analyze it and break it down from there. It's usually going to oh. be some kind of wacky. Tourist doesn't get all the shot. Change up. B tank. JT Miller hits the crossbar on the other end. You, the, the the loss is because you went to overtime, not because you lost in overtime. I agree. I totally agree with you. The overtime is that's why I say if you get to a game seven in this series the way it's gone, I look at it as a crapshoot. It's kind of a toss up. 
Uh, Ghost of Tex Rickard says, I said the Rangers in seven, so I was prepared for the loss, but Saturday felt like Mel Gibson at the end of Braveheart. <laughs> and if you haven't seen Braveheart, he was gutted. And yeah, but they, the ex- was a little more, I would say that was probably a little bit more painful personally. Yes. For William Wallace, if I go back in history, but you know, hey, this was a tough one. And you also, unless you make it a prequel, you know, there's no sequel to Braveheart because that's it. Once, right. once they no, gut you, there's there. nothing left. You know, unless you're, you're gonna, you're unless, unless, the, unless the movie's gonna be called The Ghost of Braveheart, there's not much place to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Yehuda says, are the Blues regretting the Shattenkirk trade now, or no. would they go back and make a trade? Uh, was it worth it? I think that the trade was fine. I think the only thing I would regret if I was the Blues is they didn't do it in the offseason when they could have gotten more for Shattenkirk. Okay. I think at the end they were dealing from strength. Uh, Edmondson and Pareko really, to me, are their top pair. They may think that Petrangelo and Boomis are their top pair. I think Pareko and Edmondson are, are better. Um, and so, the uh, you know, for me, that was the strength of their team. It was pretty clear they, uh, they weren't going to be able to keep Shattenkirk. I know it's easy for me to stay sitting here second-guessing it, but that's a strength, and you had some guys on defense. Why not just – you were going to do it anyway. Trade them in uh, at the draft last year. You might have been able to get a real more impactful player for your team now right. with that. So I don't think – for me, if I'm Doug Armstrong, the only regret I have is that I didn't do it sooner. And that was a nice run for them to be able to make the playoffs at the end of the year, win a, win around, give Nashville all they can handle. I think that they have to be – Pretty proud of the way that they handled after that trade. And let's close it out with Emily D. NHL guys like Tom Wilson or why this league is second tier. Hashtag kick him out. Hashtag left his feet. Okay. <laughs> so I guess well, he's... <laughs> I mean, I think we can go to a long line of players that have been, you know, that play on the edge and, you know, will... We'll play a nasty game. Tom Wilson, I thought, was uh, a little over that edge the other night with some of those hits. Mm. He hit, uh, I think it was uh, Daly from behind. There was no call on that one. He hit, uh, I'm not sure if it was Gensel near the boards, and not. he got a penalty for that particular play. So, uh, yeah, Tom Wilson certainly plays on that edge, and uh, sometimes he crosses it. And I can see fans of teams that play against the Capitals not happy with his play. Yeah, and we got to stop with the whole second tier. This is why the sport isn't popular. Stop. I mean, I'm not even going to get into that. that. I mean, I don't think that has anything to do with it. No, of course it doesn't. That's just somebody who's a fan that's not happy with a particular player. Now, if, if you're a Penguins fan and Tom Wilson is wearing that block and gold, and he's running around knocking people in the next week, you're probably not complaining as much. And, so, I mean, that's well, the well, nature of things. And you know what? And I and I could sit here, and we both know John Delapina. He does a tremendous job, works for the league now, used to cover the Rangers for the New York yeah. Daily News, and we have the benefit of seeing him a lot at the Garden because the NHL yeah. offices are based out of New York. And yeah. even hockey people sometimes yeah. flip out over calls or non-calls and question certain rules. And when you talk to John, maybe it's just his demeanor, he gets you thinking a little differently after you have a conversation with him yeah, because it's in yeah. the eye of the beholder. Fans have to realize nobody's out to get the Canadian teams. Nobody is out to favor the Canadian teams. There's no agenda. I'm telling you, we both work for the league. We see yeah, how it's run. Yeah. Believe me, if if this was all rigged, they're awful at it, okay? Because yeah, when I saw yeah. a final, no offense, you know, between Caroline and Edmonton coming out of the lockout, you couldn't design it worse as far as trying to captivate the nation, okay? So stop with the. Uh, it would be you know be Rangers and Kings every year, or, 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 or the Canadians would have won a cup since 1993, or the Toronto would have been to at least a final well, since 67. 
certainly we wouldn't be staring into the abyss from a U.S. TV ratings standpoint of of several Edmonton Toronto Stanley Cup finals well, in the future. Well, that, I mean, th- that's Carmen the thing. David would not be playing for the Edmonton Oilers if it was a big right. game. So. so I'm assuming Emily's a Penguins fan and she's seeing it through through black and yellow eyeglasses. Yeah. I get it, just like I deal with yeah. Ranger fans and and you've had to deal with all the fans on the show that you do. But you know the league doesn't have that benefit. I'm not saying they don't get it wrong, and I'm not saying yeah, that Emily right. is completely off base as far as her analysis of Tom Wilson, but. You just have to pump the brakes a little bit, be a little bit more um, even keel on it. And I think if you had it explained to you differently, it's a fast game. It's the fastest game in the world. It's very difficult to officiate. These are the playoffs. You don't want to make decisions that are going to cost teams cups. So I think that we have to be a little bit more even-handed with our criticism instead of always, well, this is why the league is in the state. Uh, Believe me, look at the strike zone in baseball. Look at the non-competitive NBA playoffs. Take a look at what's uh, what's a pass interference and not in football. I mean, come on. Let's relax. I watched watched that 18-inning Yankees-Cubs game on Sunday night, Donnie, and Joe West's strike zone was every every which way but loose. And, like, listen, you come if you know, if you're a fan, I think you have to realize in these sports, you know, in baseball, you have to live with the ball strike calls. I mean, like, it's just until they go to some kind of automated, automatic system with with the uh, computer technology they have, which I don't think they're going to do anytime soon, you got to live with it. In the NFL, you got to live with pass interference calls and what's a catch and what's not a catch. It's not always clean. No. In all these sports, and hockey has its challenges in that regard too. But they try to do the best they can, and I, I'm with you. I don't think there's any uh, hidden agenda to try no. to favor one over another. No, and there's there's human error that's involved in yeah. it, and it's Absolutely. so easy to look back after seeing a million highlights and seeing a million opinion from everybody, as opposed to somebody's got to make a split second decision. And a league having to make a decision. Believe me, they'll have angles, and they've got expertise that neither of us have. Uh, when judging some of the things no, that go on, best. so they, they do their they, best, they do they their best get, right? They don't always get it right, and like I said the other night in that Edmonton uh, Anaheim game, Donnie, the thing about that was when a guy gets pushed into the crease like Kessler was. You know, we can all make assumptions about what Kessler is trying to do or not trying to do there, but the reality is this: he was pushed in there, and when there's a lot of gray in that situation, it's hard for anybody to say, "Hey, we got to overturn this goal now because we think he's trying to do this with his stick hand." You can't do it. And but I mean, it just—it's just too tricky. And like, you know, my last point on it again, and I, and I said it earlier, is replay is not perfect. It will help us get some things right that clearly were not done, were not called accurately. But it won't be the be-all, end-all. There will be a lot of gray area, and there'll be times when then many will feel it has that it hasn't worked effectively. But in the end, it's better to still have it to get the ones right that you can get right, and you have to live with the other ones. DJ Raddick, NHL Network, NHL Now, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6. And, of course, he'll be all over uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs and finals once we get there. EJ, always a pleasure. We'll talk to you next Monday, buddy. All right, Donnie. See ya. All right, that's the great EJ Raddick. You can follow him, of course, all season long on this show. He does a terrific job getting everybody involved. And you can also follow him on Twitter at, at EJ Raddick underscore NHL. All right, we'll be back with you again tomorrow. I'll give you more of a deep preview on the Rangers and the Senators game six. And we'll also recap game six between the Capitals and the Penguins. Of course, you can get in touch with me at Don LaGreca, hashtag game misconduct. You can also follow me on ESPN app and on iTunes. Subscribe to Game Misconduct. Love it that you've climbed aboard. Back with you again tomorrow. This was the Monday edition of Game Misconduct. This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca.